This is Ozarks at Large for Tuesday, November 23rd, 2021 on your public radio station, KUAF. You can listen to us anytime, anywhere by using our free KUAF app. On today's show, the annual Holidays Pop-Up Bar that raises money for area nonprofits is back for the 2021 holiday season. I mean, we had over almost 1,000 people come through on Friday night and close to 800 Saturday, and I didn't even look at the count last night. So I didn't either. I was too tired to look at the count. Same. More later. And just ahead, Ozarks at Large's Timothy Dennis toured the not-yet-finished Faye Jones Woods Phase 1 yesterday. In about four minutes, he'll tell us what he discovered. The lone independent in the Arkansas legislature will not seek re-election. State Senator Jim Hendren announced on his website yesterday that his work with Common Ground, a government reform effort, leaves not enough time to concentrate on his district. Talk Business and Politics reports he also is ruling out running for governor in 2022. The president and CEO of the Greater Bentonville Chamber of Commerce since 2017 will step down at the end of this year. Graham Cobb announced yesterday he's leaving the post. In a statement, he wrote that he will remain in Bentonville. Incoming 2022 chairperson Monica Kumar will immediately lead a team to identify the next CEO of the chamber. The Arkansas Department of Health reports 270 new cases of COVID-19 in the most recent 24-hour testing period. Hospitalizations increased for the second consecutive day by 19 patients. The 333 people in Arkansas hospitals with the virus represent the highest such total since late October. With the number of COVID-19 cases on the rise again in Arkansas, state medical experts are offering guidance for spending time with friends and family during the Thanksgiving holiday. Dr. Joel Tumlison with the Arkansas Department of Health says any of the vaccines approved for use in the state offer the best protection. For those people who are fully vaccinated, you know, they, they can have a Thanksgiving gathering with less concern this year that they're going to get ill. But the, that, uh, like we said, with breakthrough infections being a fact, that risk isn't zero. Um, and so if they can also implement some other preventive measures in their celebration, then that would be best. According to information from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, the likelihood of contracting a breakthrough infection despite being fully vaccinated is possible, but a lack of tracking makes it difficult to predict with accuracy. Celebrating outdoors or in well-ventilated spaces and wearing masks while indoors are among the extra precautions recommended by Dr. Tumlison. The latest numbers from the Northwest Arkansas Council's count indicate just more than 50 percent of residents, five and older, in Washington County are fully immunized against COVID-19. Just fewer than 50 percent in Benton County are fully vaccinated. The rate in Washington County, 50.2 percent. In Benton County, 48.4 percent. The latest report from the Northwest Arkansas Council shows hospitals in the two counties have 44 patients with COVID-19. The outgoing president and CEO of the Jones Center in Springdale is being honored with the Governor Arts Award for Arts Community Development. Ed Clifford also served as the president and CEO of the Bentonville Bella Vista Chamber of Commerce from 2001 to 2012. Clifford and the other Governor's Arts Awards recipients will be honored at a ceremony in March. One of the biggest names in country music will perform at Reynolds Razorback Stadium this spring. The University of Arkansas Athletic Department announced this morning Garth Brooks is scheduled to perform on Saturday, April 22nd. Tickets go on sale December 3rd through Ticketmaster outlets. According to today's announcement, this will be the first independently produced concert inside the football venue.
This is Ozarks at Large. That is taking you inside phase one of the Faye Jones Woods, a project that's taking place in downtown Fayetteville. Ozarks at Large's Timothy Dennis was part of a hard hat sneak preview tour of the first phase of Faye Jones Woods, and he is with me right now. Hello, Timothy. Hello, Kyle. So uh, you got to see what will be open to the public in a few months. What'd you think? Oh, my gosh. It was incredible. I mean, there are a couple waterfalls that are going to be in there, uh, several acres of parkland, of woods, uh, the raised trails. I mean, it's all just incredible looking. It's still a work in progress at this point. But it's it's going to be something special when they're done. Well, tell me about this location. Okay, so Kyle, you may remember, but this park's history goes back to around 1999 when development of the Coles Department Store in North Fayetteville was approved. The city council at that time voted to allow removal of several old-growth oak trees to make way for that development. Right. As a result of that, the Sierra Club and League of Women Voters sued the city for violating its own tree preservation ordinance, and they won. And part of that settlement dictated that the city dedicate about a half million dollars on Greenway acquisition. The Faye Jones Woods was part of that five-parcel acquisition that was part of that settlement. The Greenway was constructed around that time, and a few years back, the Walton Family Foundation, they awarded a design excellence grant to help design this uh, reimagining of the Faye Jones Woods. And in 2019, Fayetteville voters approved a bond issue to fund construction of the park, and that's where we are today. One thing that's really cool about this project, though, one thing the city's really uh, promoting is that this is set to be the first sites-certified project in the city and the state. Uh, sites is it's similar to lead certification for buildings, but it's for landscape architecture projects. Lee Porter, she's with Integrity Partners, who is the city's sustainability consultant on the project, and she explains a little bit about what that program looks for. So sites looks at all sorts of things, how water is used on the project, what materials are used, regional and recycled content of those materials, how people are treated on the job site, and then uh, operations and maintenance as the project wraps up. I'm talking with Timothy Dennis. Yesterday, he was part of a preview tour of phase one of the Faye Jones Woods being constructed or designed or created. Really, in downtown Fayetteville, there will be trails inside? Correct, correct. Uh, So the trails, they're kind of a serpentine layout throughout the woods. And as part of the project, they survey between 13 and 1400 trees in the woods and Through that, they figured out what the ideal layout would be in addition to taking into account the slope and everything of the property. Here's Peter Nierengarten, the city's sustainability coordinator, uh, describing a little bit how they figured out that layout of the trail. It's one of the reasons you'll see behind you the trail does, you know, it serpentines so much and doubles back on itself is because, you know, to get to lose elevation or to go down, if you go straight down the hill, it's going to be a lot steeper than if you you meander and switch back your way down. And so with the goal of keeping the trails at an accessible 5% maximum gray the whole way down, we had to add length uh, and therefore make our way down. So we used yeah, the tree survey to guide where we were able to, to snake that, that route down the hill. 
And don't I understand not just do they have landscapers and designers and parks and trails people, but there are archaeologists that have been part of this? Correct. Uh, in the woods, there are also remnants of a historical homestead, which according to Dan Wilcutt, the project superintendent for Napoles Construction, they had to take special considerations during construction because of those those homesteads, those ruins that were there. Corps of Engineers required us to have a permit in order to work on the stream. They did an archaeological survey that's, I think, one of the uh, uh, natural alternative things you could do out here is this stuff with this, or this uh, archaeological dig from what we talked about earlier, Daniel Boone, Job's place. So while we've been doing this work, we've had to have an archaeologist with us uh, when we cut into this to kind of observe and survey what we find. And he said they haven't found much. They found a few pieces with maker's marks on them, but not much of note. What else is in this area that will be the Faye Jones Woods? Well, one thing that's not going to be in it uh, is invasive species. They have <laughs> done a lot of work removing honeysuckle, privet, English ivy, periwinkle, and other invasives. Uh, and the city's worked with their environmental action committee to remove those in the shrub layers. But another big feature of the new park is restoration of Tanglewood Branch Creek. Uh, Peter Nierengarten, again with the city, he says the creek is continuously fed from nearby springs. This creek does flow 24 by 7, 365. It's fed by three springs, one under the Walton Arts Center, one uh, that is under Spring Street that comes down the hill, and then the other one that's up by the uh, post office, uh, all coming together in that parking lot across from the Walton Arts Center. And so that, that feeds this stream with beautiful, clean water all the time. The only time the flow really changes much is when it's you know, raining heavily. This creek is pretty cool, and I think a lot of people probably haven't seen it in in a, well, not even a pristine state, but maybe haven't even seen it. Right, because, I mean, a lot of this creek has been covered up for, what, close to 30 years yeah. since the parking lot across from Walton Art Center was built. Right. But the stream itself is being restored by the Watershed Conservation Resource Center here in northwest Arkansas. While I was there yesterday, crews were readying a bridge that's going to be installed over the creek probably next week. And it will connect uh, Tanglewood Park, which is on the opposite side of the creek, to the portion that's on this east side, closer to KUAF, actually. And one thing that they're doing as part of the site's assessment for this project, they assessed the water in the creek before construction, and they're going to test it again after construction to make sure water quality is at least as good as it was before they started. Lee Porter from Integrity Partners, she says that the creek is a special part of this whole project. I think this project is really awesome because, you know, a lot of really wonderful cities in the U.S. have streams and creeks running through the center of them. And Fayetteville has that, we just hadn't capitalized on it. And now we have a really awesome space for people to enjoy water in the middle of our downtown. This sounds like a big <laughs> operation. They've been working on it for a while. Yeah, since about October of 2020, mm. they've been going at it. Another more visible part of phase one of this Faye Jones Woods project is the streetscaping that's underway just a block away on West Avenue. Uh, so far, the utilities have been buried, retaining walls have been rebuilt, even mm -hmm. reusing some of the stone that was on original retaining walls along the street. 
Curbs and gutters have been installed. Yesterday, a base layer of the street was already in progress. Uh, again, Dan Wilcutt of uh, Napoles Construction, he says moving the utilities was a bit tricky considering the age of this part of town. So the ones that were still used and tied to houses, good locates. But yeah, there was some old utilities. Rock Street's no longer there. So there was digging through there. We found all those old water lines that come through there and then having to deal with that. Same way you have, are we on three gas lines in the street? Two abandoned gas lines and one new one that we relocated. So uh, two water lines in places down there and... Uh, a remodel. Everybody's probably been a part of something, even if it's a small remodel at your house. Now think of a how old's the street? This is one of the original grids of Fayetteville, so 18, 1870s, 80s, yeah. And what's in the ground that nobody remembered? And this will be obviously pedestrian friendly. I mean, right. Another feature of this new streetscaping it's a series of pedestrian crossings along West Avenue that will provide better pedestrian connections to the Razorback Greenway. Because, you know, right now, Kyle, in that area, the only uh, connection was that one just to the west of Fayetteville Public Library that snaked pretty much straight downhill toward right. the Greenway. Or straight uphill if you're on your exactly, bike trying to come exactly. up. Exactly. Yes. Uh, here's Peter Nierengarten from the city talking about kind of what their thinking was behind how they were trying to make it a little bit safer along West Avenue for pedestrians and cyclists. The idea behind the, the crosswalks was to, to do two things. A, to help get people safely across the street, but then also to act as traffic calming along the street. So between West Avenue and South Street is somewhat of a super block, right? A really long block length, and every other block has uh, either a three-way or a four-way stop at it. Uh, and so in order to, you know, those slow down vehicles on a, you know, 250 to 300 foot spacing. Well, so to keep that spacing up, what we did is this elevated crosswalk and then the other one behind me at the other set of steps to slow vehicles down. Before the streetscape improvements were in, you know, this was, you know, a speedway of people, you know, particularly a Friday, Saturday night, leaving Dixon Street, you know, inebriated, going too fast. Homeowners had their cars hit uh, along here multiple times. So this will help slow that down and make, make this a lot safer for pedestrians uh, and other vehicle users. All right, so yesterday you took the tour. When will the rest of us be able to experience this? Okay, so Peter <laughs> Nierengarten said the uh, plan is to finish the streetscaping, then the section of Razorback Greenway that cuts through the Faye Jones Woods will be resurfaced as soon as West Avenue is done so that there's a little bit of a detour, like both routes won't be cut off. So, like— West Avenue has been kind of torn up for a while, and right. we've had the Greenway. So once West Avenue is opened back up, the Greenway will be blocked. Correct, and, okay. correct. And they're looking probably December, January, a low-impact time, mm. as they can find, uh, to do that work. Overall construction, they're expecting to be complete in about April, for Phase 1 anyway. And groundbreaking on Phase 2 is going to be soon, they say. Okay. Timothy Dennis, thank you very much. Thank you. on Ozarks, the U.S. Secretary of Veterans Affairs was in Northwest Arkansas yesterday. Ozarks at Large's Jacqueline Froelich will bring us a report. 
The Cherokee Nation Foundation is expanding scholarship opportunities for the 2022-23 academic year. New scholarships are made possible through the foundation's donor matching program and include scholarships for at-large citizens and students pursuing study in the medical field, in education, agriculture, and computer science. Deadline for application, January 31st, 2022. Applications can be made at CherokeeNationFoundation.org slash scholarships. Last year, the foundation awarded nearly $228,000 to 20 graduating high school students and 69 university students. The John Brown University's 79th annual candlelight service will be in person this year with limited seating. Services are at 7 p.m. on the nights of December 9th, 10th, and 11th. Doors will open at 6.30 each night. Face coverings will be required to be worn during the service since there will be congregational singing. Tickets are $1.00. They can be purchased through jbu.edu slash candlelight or in person in Simmons Great Hall on the JBU campus. And the American Farm Bureau's 36th annual survey of the cost of preparing a traditional Thanksgiving meal indicates the average cost of this year's classic feast for 10 is $53.31 or a little bit under $6 per person. This is a $6.41 or 14% increase from last year's average of $46.90. The centerpiece on most Thanksgiving tables, the turkey, cost more than last year at $23.99 for a 16-pound bird, roughly a buck and a half per pound, up 24% from last year. Farm Bureau volunteer shoppers checked on the prices between October 26th and November 8th. Happy holidays from the KUAF and Friends Holiday Giveaway. This is your chance to win a gift from one of many generous KUAF underwriters. Participants include Woodstonecraft Pizza, Botanical Garden of the Ozarks, Fayetteville Roots, and more. Winners announced Friday, December 10th during the noon edition of Ozarks at Large. Details and registration available at KUAF.com. This is Ozarks at Large. The U.S. Secretary of Veterans Affairs, Dennis McDonough, traveled to northwest Arkansas yesterday to visit the veterans' health care system of the Ozarks in Fayetteville. Among his entourage, U.S. Republican Congressman Steve Womack and U.S. Republican Senator John Bozeman, who extended an invitation to the secretary to visit the area. Ozarks at Large's Jacqueline Froelich reports. U.S. Secretary of Veterans Affairs Dennis McDonough was nominated this year by President Joe Biden to lead the Department of Veterans Affairs. Previously, McDonough served as White House Chief of Staff during the Obama administration, where he routinely focused on the needs of military families and veterans. Prior to the press conference, McDonough, along with U.S. Congressman Steve Womack and U.S. Senator John Bozeman, toured Veterans Health Care System of the Ozarks. I've had a great visit uh, this morning, and we're just halfway through the day. Uh, I want to just underscore my great appreciation for the team here at Fayetteville. Uh, They are aggressively returning to uh, full access to care as the pandemic hopefully winds down. McDonough has oversight of the Veterans Health Administration, the largest integrated health care system in the U.S., providing care at 1,293 facilities, including 171 VA medical centers and over 1,000 outpatient clinics with over 9 million veterans enrolled. Since 1934, the Fayetteville VA has operated a hospital along with a growing number of satellite clinics in the tri-state area, including, McDonough announced, 
several new treatment facilities opening next year with assistance from both Bozeman and Womack. We will be opening the Fort Smith community-based outpatient clinic starting in the spring. And we'll also be opening a new inpatient mental health care facility here on campus. McDonough's is expanding mental health at the Fayetteville VA is timely given a surge of veterans struggling with substance abuse disorders, in part triggered by the pandemic when demand currently outstrips provider capacity. The VA is focused on all veterans having access to comprehensive medical care, he says. I'm very proud that during FY 2021, the fiscal year that runs from uh, October 1 to September, we saw the most and provided the most outpatient care ever provided in, in VA with more than 78 million individual health care visits. But one cohort, an estimated 14,000 LGBTQ plus veterans forcibly discharged from the military under a Clinton-era policy known as Don't Ask, Don't Tell, have long been barred from access to VA benefits. The policy was repealed a decade ago, but it wasn't until this year, under the Biden administration, that the Department of Veterans Affairs is now extending benefits. The president has demanded that I be a fierce advocate for veterans. The Senate has confirmed me to be a fierce advocate for veterans. Nobody has said I should do that for some veterans. Everybody has demanded that I do it for all veterans. McDonough says he learned during his visit that the Fayetteville VA has been identified as a national leader in caring for LGBT vets. He's also acutely aware that the Fayetteville VA suffered a major blow recently after it was discovered that an impaired chief of pathology, now in prison, failed to accurately diagnose over a 10-year span thousands of patients, resulting in nearly 600 major medical errors, leading to the death of 15 veterans. According to a report issued this summer by the VA's Office of Inspector General on the matter, hospital leaders at the Fayetteville VA were cited for failing to promote a culture of accountability. Since my hearing before uh, Senator Bozeman and his colleagues in the Senate, uh, where they underscored the importance of whistleblower protections uh, to this day, I've routinely underscored and made sure that our employees have access to avenues to report behavior that they're concerned about. McDonough says Fayetteville VA staff should not have to choose between their conscience and their career. If they have concerns, I have urged them to come forward. And in fact, I've said time and time again and said again this morning, I want to be the head of an agency in which information travels quickly. Whether that information tells a flattering story or whether that information tells a damaging story. Last week, Stars and Stripes, an American military newspaper, quoted McDonough as saying that failure by Congress to approve a new federal budget soon will place health care of millions of U.S. veterans at grave risk, an issue he addressed at the Fayetteville press conference. The one thing we have is we have advanced appropriation, which is a helpful tool. Uh, so, and that's uh, something that uh, Senator Bozeman and Mr. Womack have uh, actively uh, helped get into place and help fund. So that's an important thing, which is to say that gives us enough money for the next year in the budget process. So that's important. 
But it is true that uh, a more regular budget process would be useful to us. We're very concerned about talk of a full year continuing resolution, which would impact our ability to provide care in a timely way on many of the issues we've discussed today. McDonough also discussed the VA's COVID-19 response. According to the latest national data, more than 16,600 veterans have died due to COVID-19, over 6,000 in VA facilities, with nearly 380,000 cumulative cases. Of those, 3,500 cumulative cases occurred at the Fayetteville VA since the pandemic was declared, with over 200 veterans dying due to COVID, according to Acts to care.va.gov. The team here and across VA has provided timely, excellent access to care that has led to better outcomes for veterans throughout the pandemic. And they've done that oftentimes at risk to themselves, surely sometimes at risk to their families. And I want them to hear from me how much I appreciate their having done so. McDonough says telehealth visits have sharply escalated. There was about 2,500 video visits a day in March 2020. A year later, there was 45,000 such visits a day. That's a national figure. Data provided by Veterans Healthcare System of the Ozarks show an 84% approval for routine care appointment access and a 93% specialty care access approval, with urgent care ranked slightly less. VA Secretary McDonough says veterans medically thrive when under the VA's care. For Ozarks at Large, I'm Jacqueline Froelich. The field is set for the special election to fill the vacant state Senate District 7 seat. Filing deadline was yesterday at noon, and there will be party primaries on December 14th for both Republicans and Democrats. Derek Van Vos filed yesterday as a Democrat, setting up a primary with Lisa Parks. Four candidates are seeking the GOP nomination, Jim Bob Duggar, Colby Fulfer, Robert Nolan, and Stephen Unger. If a primary runoff is needed for either party, that will be January 11th. Then the special election date is February 8th. The seat was vacated when Lance Eads resigned to take a job in the private sector. I'm Scott Tong. Thinking of retiring early? It's tempting. Well, millions of Americans have quit their jobs in the pandemic, and many are early retirees. Washington Post financial columnist Michelle Singletary tells us what to think about before joining the Great Resignation. That's next time on Here and Now. Here and now, this afternoon at 1 on KUAF, and you can also listen by asking your smart speaker to please play KUAF. This is Ozarks at Large. Matt McGowan's first novel, 1971, is set in the rural Missouri Ozarks in 1971. At the beginning of the book, we meet Bud, a 13-year-old boy, as he's being unknowingly abandoned by his mother, Fanny, alongside a rural Missouri farm. Bud's relationship with the owners of the farm Herschel and Martha and their grown son, who's just returned from Vietnam, helped shape the story. We also follow Fanny from Missouri to California. McGowan, who lives in Fayetteville and works for the University of Arkansas, recently came to the Carver Center for Public Radio to discuss the novel. He says when he began writing the book, he knew he wanted to place the story in a specific time in American history. I like a lot about history in the early 70s, and I'm, I'm really intrigued by it on a personal level because of, uh, because of my vague memory of some of these events. For example, my dad had a, um, uh, a high school buddy who was a pilot, 
in Vietnam, and he was shot down mm. over, I think, Laos or Cambodia. And we had gone over to his widow's house, and, I mean, she didn't know, it hadn't been confirmed that he was dead, but they were pretty sure of it, and we had gone over there to visit with her, and I was four years old. Ooh. And my uh, mom and dad were consoling this woman. And I, during this, I went outside, and I was, I remember I went outside and stood on a rock to see if I could find Vietnam. Mm. So those were some, um, like our times today, some really uh, contentious, uh, volatile years. You grew up in the Missouri Ozarks. This is set in the Missouri Ozarks. Um, I'm glad you've pointed out to folks that there will be an age difference between you and our protagonist because there's that inclination that, oh, this might be semi-autobiographical, but it's fiction. It's fiction. It's not, it's not autobiography. Um, like I think most fiction, there are, uh, of course, uh, mo auto autobiographical moments, scenes, of course, uh, but the story is um, total fabrication. Um, okay, so you said you knew it was going to be that year, but not the title. How did you land on the title? Mm, that's a good question. I had thought about it. Uh, I'm more on the side of, um, uh, well, being wordy rather than being succinct, precise with language. And so I was playing with it in my mind and thinking, you know, how can I, uh, I like a clever title, but I'm not very clever, clever with them. I always, at work, I always rely on our friend Charlie Allison to write my titles because he's, he's a pro at that. And um, so, uh, but I was, I was thinking about something that needed to be brief and, and it, it felt like that year sort of encapsulated a lot of the story. Uh, so I had thought about it, and I mentioned it to my editor, who's also my wife, and she <laughs> she liked it a lot. And um, uh, I, I actually think she might have. I think I mentioned it to my to my publisher, uh, Janine, my editor uh, and wife. She she had the idea. I think she had the idea herself. What about this year? And I said, Oh yeah, I uh, I, I considered that, but it, it seemed didn't seem like enough. And she said, No, I like it a lot. And so I had mentioned that to my publishers, and the publishers were like, we love it, and let's, let's just do that. And I was like, well, there's two of us that are certain, three of us that are certain on it, and one who's pretty certain, so that's, that's good enough. I am amazed at the dialogue, because you, you, you just said you tend to be wordy, but the dialogue in this book, whether it's between a farmer and his wife, or this sort of um, orphaned child, and... and these people who become his his mentors, it never rings hollow, even when it's just sort of a, um, you know, an everyday conversation. How hard did you work to get the dialogue to sound, to read exactly like people talk? Because that is not easy. I will say that not as hard as I worked to, to come up with the uh, exposition around it. Really? Yeah. The, the dialogue is, it just comes naturally to me. I hear a lot of people say that they have a hard time writing dialogue. It's not to say that I didn't work on it. I, I, I worked on it a lot. And uh, as with exposition, I can go on and on with dialogue. Um, but in this case, and of course, you know, the editing of the book was helpful too, but less so than uh, the exposition. Um, I just, I, I it comes natural to me. I have an ear for it. I think a lot of it 
has uh, come from the verbal, sorry, the oral tradition that I heard from my mother, frankly, um, and my, you know, a lot of other family members, but my mom and uh, my brother, my mom and my brother especially are uh, really good storytellers in the oral tradition. And I think it just comes from, it comes from that uh, to some extent, but then also, um, you know, we're a pretty verbal people and um, (laughs) both my family of origin and my families of creation. And uh, we talk a lot and I just hear a lot of, I hear dialogue in my mind a lot. So you talked about exhibition or the the exposition that's around the dialogue. Don't want to give too much away, but, you know, we meet a boy who is how old? He's He's 13. 13. He's sort of directed to go towards this farm when a car is broken down. It turns out that he's being left. And this man and his wife sort of shepherd him, take care of him, send him to school. How did this story originate with you? Well, I wish I had. I wish I could tell you that it, that it was a newspaper story that I had read or a a, um, a magazine story, but it, it wasn't. Um, I, um, you know, I, I was stuck on this one idea of not abandonment necessarily, but of this idea of love coming from people other than those we expect to give it. Um, by our parents, for example, grandparents or his relatives and close friends, but um, this idea of love being given freely without expectations from total strangers. But uh, so that that was kind of one thing. Um, well, and especially uh, perhaps most most importantly by people who had um, experienced some trauma or pain mm-hmm. themselves. So, but other, but you know, this also I was stuck on this idea of the the hills the ozarks my home and this um this idea of young people moving i think as i mentioned in the book with joe their adult son there's a lot of young people on the move he says and there and there were at that time um we're a pretty mobile society in general but at that time you know, I had read some books about young people moving, you know, migrating out to California. Migrating is probably too, too uh, strong or um, favorable of a word. I think they were roaming um, mm-hmm. out to California. Um, so I was, I was kind of stuck on that, this, this idea of movement and, and this idea of, well, you know, the kind of the back to landers, this group of people who had come back to the Ozarks. Fanny wasn't a back to lander. But she um, uh, she shows up in the Ozarks, and um, and you know there's this idea, you know, just this idea that she's um, she's troubled, and um, and this is a familiar place in my mind, and uh, this is where um, a few things happened, not traumatic things happened to me, but familiar things happened to me when I was very young in this area, and it just seemed like um, the place. For that to happen and for that to be the thing that happens, which is this, the thing being this kind of unacceptable thing is that is abandoning a child. You mentioned there were a lot of people on the move and we do have a rock and roll band that's moving west, hoping for the golden record, hoping for the contract to play on Sunset Boulevard. Is it? No, Uh, it's... uh, 
I think it is Sunset Boulevard. Yeah. They they have a gig at the Whiskey A Go Go. Yeah, the Whiskey yeah. A Go Go. Were you ever so, part of something like that? Oh no, absolutely <laughs> not. Uh, I don't. <laughs> but I'm suspecting that you've driven across country because you have some of those details of being in a van and barely having enough money for gas. And oh, absolutely. In fact. One time, my brother and I broke down in the Mojave mm-hmm. in a van uh, when we were, I was 19 and he was 16. Um, so, and I think that kind of shows up at one point. The guy says, I might have had that experience where the gas station attendant says, better take some water, <laughs> take some water because you're getting ready to, to enter some inhospitable uh, territory. Um, of course, Fanny knows that because she's been out there herself. Um, I think I had we had that s- same experience that somebody kind of prepared us and said, you know, this is you're getting ready to go into a very uh, there's not going to be a gas station for a while. You want to make sure your car's running well and that kind of thing. Yeah, I had gone out to California, California um, many times, but it wasn't. Well, I wouldn't say many times, um, a few times, uh, some road trips uh, on my own and, and with others. So, yes, I was I was fascinated by that experience, but not, I was fascinated by it uh, less because of my own experience and more because of, of the Jodes, because of mm. Steinbeck um, and, and because of, frankly, because of Woody Guthrie, the, the can we say Okies and Arkies still, who had, um, who had gone out to, who had to go out there to to stay alive, you know, because they'd lost their farms and that kind of thing. So I remember reading about. So I've been I've been stuck. I've been fascinated by this idea of migration, um, especially during the Depression. People moving out there. It's there's something romantic about it. Although it wasn't romantic for them, it was tragic for them. That is the the people who lost their farms and had to go out there in the 30s. But ever since I read The Grapes of Wrath and a biography of a really good biography of Woody Guthrie, I have been fascinated by essentially my people having to just pick up and, and go because there's nothing here. And, um, you know, and I've had, so there were my, my experiences, but mostly it was, uh, and a few friends of mine, one in particular who was sort of a surrogate sister who had gone out there to California. Uh, she was older than me. She had gone out to California to visit a friend couple of times and um and i listened to those stories and i was just just fascinated by this idea of migration i guess it's emigration in the united states don't you think fanny who is uh, the character who leaves the child she felt she had to go it may not have been the depression but that's correct she had to move and if it and and if it's driving this band that she kind of meets at random, yeah. So be it. She was compelled. I, I, she was compelled to go out to California. I don't know if she fully understood that. She was, uh, she was troubled, and and I'll just say, you know, grieving. I don't think that gives away too much. We learn pretty pretty early mm-hmm. on in the book. Readers learn pretty early on in the book why she's grieving. So she's troubled. She's not. She's hurting emotionally, and she's not thinking clearly. Um. And yes, she is compelled to go to go out there. It may not be coherent in her head as to why. Uh, it at times it is, uh, but yes, she's willing to get out there any way she can. And it's you know, it's not planes, 
trains and automobiles, but it's buses. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, it's get there any way you can. Hitchhiking, Greyhound, and then, yeah, she she hooks up with a rock and roll band. And they need somebody to drive because mainly they're just wanting to smoke pot and and sleep. (laughs) And then get to the Whiskey A Go-Go and get that big contract. Exactly. Did you know, as you were putting this together, all the characters, who they were going to be? Or did some of them develop as you were writing? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, the latter. Yeah. I knew some of them for sure. I knew Bud and Fanny. Bud's our young 13-year-old. Yeah, Bud is the, uh, the 13-year-old protagonist, or I guess really one of the two protagonists. I knew, yes, I knew I wanted to tell his story and Fanny's and really the Claypools, Herschel and Martha. Um, no, a lot of that other stuff, as with really most of my writing— uh, it, it, I get this question asked a lot. D- did you have this whole story um, sort of complete in your mind before you started? And almost, almost invariably, the answer to that is mm-hmm. no. Um, and I don't know if that's good or bad, but it works for me. I, I, sometimes, sometimes it's there, and, I, and I'll be honest, when the whole thing's there and I've started out, it, it sometimes doesn't work. Uh, it, it it doesn't at least doesn't turn out to to be the way I want it to be, and so when I'm when I'm okay with just developing a narrative and plot as I go along, um, very often I'm pleasantly surprised. Hmm. Yeah. Finally, you mentioned that at the heart of this story is unexpected love, sort of unconditional love. Martha and Herschel just take to Bud, Bud takes to them. There's stability that Bud hasn't had. And I'm wondering, Martha and Herschel are older. I mean, they've got grown children. Were you protective of the relationship between the two older adults and 13-year-old Bud as you were writing? Because it's a beautiful relationship. Mm -hmm. Yes, I was. Yes, I was protective of it. It was, I think not initially, um, I don't, uh, that's a great question. I'm clearly struggling to answer it. Yes, I was protective of it. Uh, A lot of that came out of, uh, although the the scenes weren't autobiographical, a lot of that came out of um, uh, my my paternal grandfather's love for for me Mm. uh, expressed through just time with me. I was sent out to the farm because... My parents were working, and um, um, I spent out days, hours and hours and days with him, and he was dying. I th- think he knew that. He was in his early 60s and had cancer, but, um, you know, he was— I spent a lot of time with him, and he showed unconditional love to me every day, which is, uh, from what I've heard from my mother— not what he showed his his own children. Hmm. Uh, so in that sense, I was very protective of that relationship. Yes, I was thinking about uh, the relationship between Bud and the, the Claypools. And I was thinking about, I was thinking about that quite a bit. Yeah. Well, congratulations. It's truly uh, a great work. Thank you, Kyle. Thanks a lot for having me. Matt McGowan's novel is titled 1971. The book is available now. He'll discuss the novel and read from it Sunday, December 12th at 2 p.m. at Two Friends Bookstore in Bentonville. 
He came to the Anthony and Susan Hoy News Studio earlier this month. It's easy to leave a message for KUAF and your community by using the Connect button on the KUAF app for iPhone. Currently, one of our available topics is, what are you thankful for? As we approach Thanksgiving, what's usually a simple question might look different this season. Let us know what you appreciate by downloading the KUAF app for iPhone at the App Store, click the Connect button at the bottom of the screen, set up your account, and leave your message. You can also call our Connect's phone line at 479-575-6577. Again, that's 575-6577. KUAF Connects. Your voice matters. Good news, you have about 180 days to get ready for a new race at the Lake of the Ozarks in Missouri. You'll run, paddle, and run over 34 miles of trail and 3 miles of lake. The LOZ Traverse, it's called. The race is May 7th, and the route connects two separate trails via the Lake of the Ozarks. If you're ready, or will be, you can register at ultrasignup.com. We now know the day and time for the Arkansas Razorback Soccer Elite 8 match against Rutgers. It will take place Friday night at 6 Central. The match is in New Jersey. Both Arkansas basketball teams won last night, the women defeating SMU and Bud Walton Arena, the number 12 in the country men topping Kansas State in the first round of the Hall of Fame Classic in Kansas City. The Arkansas Razorback men will meet Cincinnati in the tournament championship tonight at 8.30 on ESPN. And both U of A cross-country coaches are again earning SEC Coach of the Year awards. It's the 22nd SEC Cross-Country Coach of the Year award for the women's coach, Lance Harder. It's his 43rd overall SEC Coach of the Year honor. For men's coach, Chris Bucknam, it's the 10th such SEC Cross-Country Award, his 26th overall Conference Coach of the Year designation. KUAF is supported by Pack Rat Outdoor Center in Fayetteville, serving Northwest Arkansas since 1973 with adventure gear and clothing for hiking, kayaking, and more. Pack Rat carries dog packs, life vests, and accessories for the furry family members too. PackRatOC.com for online shopping, shipping, or curbside pickup. Well, it's called holidays, and no offense to either of you, but you both look a little bit dazed right now. None taken. We are dazed right now. The voices of two of the co-owners and co-creators of the annual pop-up bar experience, Holidays, Hannah Withers and Richard Gathright. The annual, now in its third year, Christmas-themed collection of vintage decorations and signature drinks in two locations this year, both in Fayetteville. There is a 21-and-up version in the old Ozark Cleaners on Block Street and like last year, a more family-friendly version in and outside the Walton Art Center. Hannah Withers says this year they wanted both the feel of the bar like the first year of holidays and the family gathering experience of last year's inaugural season at Walton Art Center. We really loved working with the Walton Art Center. They have really beautiful spaces to work with. They have an awesome staff. Um, they also allowed us to do some things that were a little more family-friendly, that which is not usually... Our, our vibe, <laughs> our demographic. <laughs> and so, um, and I think that we wanted to move a little bit back to, we wanted to work with them, but we also wanted to move back to that party bar that it felt like the first year. So we kind of thought, what happens if we do both? Let's try both. All right, a few days in, what happens if you do both? So far, so good. <laughs> <laughs> we had a great show with Nick Shoulders last night. Um, this is the first year that the the Christmas parade has also coincided with the outdoor refreshment area, and and so that has sort of changed the um, changed the 
activity on the square for Lights of the Ozarks, which is really fun. And I don't know. I, I don't things are different than they were. We didn't have a parade last year and I think I think we're coming out of COVID. Is that what we're doing? I'm I'm not I'm I I quit making me too predictions. I mean, we had over almost a thousand people come through on Friday night and close to 800 Saturday. And I didn't even look at the count last night. So I didn't either. I was too tired to look at the count. Same. (laughs) Um, But tired aside, I think uh, my favorite part of what we're doing this year is I love being in this building on Block Avenue that Maxine's has. We've been in neighbors of this building at Maxine's Taproom for eight years, and it's just such an iconic building. It's got the curved windows and the block, you know, corner curved windows and 20-foot ceilings. And I think everybody, we've seen a billion people traipse through there and kind of make a dream about what they do with that building until they figure out what it's going to take to get into it. And so we, I love temporary, temporarily occupying this space because we were able to transform it into something pretty quickly. But there are a ton of people that come in there that are just wanted to see what it looks like inside. Uh, I have been to that. I have not been to the Walton Art Center uh, campus yet this year. I went to the one that's the former Ozark Cleaners uh, Friday night during the lights of the Ozarks in, in, in Fayetteville. And it's big. It's big. How much square footage combined do you have this year? I mean, upstairs is about six, 7,000 square feet, and then there's a, an entire basement that we're not using <laughs> um, that's really actually pretty cool and would be something super amazing if, you know, you had all the money in the world. But, uh, yeah, th- we've got a really big space that we're working with. I think it's 8,500 square foot at the cleaners. And total, yeah. I have no idea how many square feet are at the Walton Art Center, but we've got, there's the whole rose garden, which looks amazing this year, all of the outside lights, and then... There's the JPM gallery and um, and the garden room as well. And I, we've got a lot of space this year. People keep calling about reservations, and we keep saying, just come. We're huge this year. We have two huge venues. <laughs> What's it like having two simultaneous staffs and operations? Walton Art Center is handling a lot of their staffing in-house. They've got a lot of... Um, Walmart AMP employees who are off for the season who have come to bartend for this, and so it's sort of extended their season a little bit. Uh, So far, it's been really great. I mean, we all did this together last year, so we did a little bit of creative direction. We created the menu for them um, and some of the logistics on that side of it with products and pricing, and and, um, we did a little bit of artistic direction with decorating. But it's pretty amazing to look at these two big spaces and know that we have all of this to decorate with. (laughs) Anna Withers and Richard Gathright are two of the four co-creators and co-owners of the seasonal Holidays Pop-Up Bar that opened up again last weekend. The Block Street 21 and Up edition is open from 5 p.m. until 2 a.m. if there's a crowd inside. And the Walton Arts Center version is from 5 until 11, though hours may expand. Both are open through December 30th, except for Thanksgiving Day and Christmas Day. This year, the pop-ups are raising funds for Washington County Children's Safety Center, Fayetteville Independent Restaurant Alliance, and NWA Equality, as well as other nonprofits that will benefit from special one-day events, like the annual nog-off, when local bartenders put their best eggnog recipes up for public judging. That takes place on December 6th this year. This is Ozarks at Large. At KUAF, we love how our listeners are helping their neighbors each and every day. And we love letting you know about who is needing that help. 
Through the Community Spotlight series, you've heard from so many nonprofit organizations every morning. Here's a bit of a discussion from back in May, Foster Care Awareness Month, with Ashley Forsgren with the Fort Smith Children's Shelter. You know, it's important to remember that every child that is placed to the children's shelter is a victim. They are here at no fault of their own, but they are also, um, you know, they're products of their environment, yeah. their past environment, and the abuse and neglect that they have experienced. And so they do have emotional and behavioral challenges due to that abuse and neglect. And our job is to help them learn how to cope from their trauma and to help them learn how to de-escalate so that they can leave the children's shelter, move into a more normal home environment, like a foster home, or even go back to their previous home if the problem had been remedied. And they know how to cope from their trauma, and they know how to move forward and make sure that they are breaking the cycle of dysfunction. Ashley Forsgren with the Fort Smith Children's Shelter. Leading up to Giving Tuesday, November 30th, we'll be revisiting moments when your help made a big difference in your community in the past. Last year, KUAF Public Radio, Local Matters. On tomorrow's show, a stunning new atlas that helps us understand the planet's climate. When I'm talking to non-scientists, the thing that often comes up the most, the challenge that comes up with the most in terms of like comprehending how the, you know, how the climate's changing and what a big deal it is, is the difficulty in relating your everyday experience at the scale of your house or your neighborhood or your backyard to the climate of the world. Conversation with the author of The Atlas of a Changing Climate tomorrow at noon and 7 p.m. on Ozarks at Large. You can also listen to us on your schedule by subscribing to the free KUAF app. Ozarks at Large is underwritten, in part, by the Walton Family Charitable Support Foundation. KUAF is supported by Hendricks College, offering engaged learning by linking classrooms to the world and developing career skills throughout its curriculum. Hendricks graduates pursue medical, law, and other advanced degrees, preparing students to lead lives of accomplishment. Hendricks.edu slash connect for more information. This is 91.3 KUAF, Fayetteville, Fort Smith, Bentonville, and Huntsville. Timothy Dennis produced today's show from inside the Harold and Blanchcock News Studio. Contributors today included Timothy Dennis and Jacqueline Froelich. We had additional assistance in putting the show together from the news staff at KUAR, Public Radio for Little Rock and all of Central Arkansas. Our theme is titled The First Hurrah. It's written and performed by Daryl Sean. Our community engagement director at KUAF is Jasper Logan. Past stories, interviews, and full editions of Ozarks at Large can be found at any time at OzarksAtLarge.com. You can listen to us at any time when you subscribe to the free podcast of our daily Ozarks at Large. From the Carver Center for Public Radio in downtown Fayetteville, I'm Kyle Kellums. Please take care of yourself. We'll talk again soon.